about 5.30 in the morning, and the phone rang, and it was the station manager from the local Christian radio station. And he's a friend of mine, he attends our church, and he said, have you, um, have you seen the church sign? And I said, well, it's 5.30 in the morning, Jeff. Um, he said, well, you need to get in your car and go look at the church sign. And I said, really? And he said, yeah, just get in your car, I live a mile from the church, go see the church sign. So he showed me the church. I went over and saw the church sign. And this is what church sign said. <laughs> now, at first when I saw the church sign, I was uh, filled with indignation uh, that someone would do this to our holy church sign. But upon further reflection, I think our sign vandals did some pretty good theology. I'm not sure they knew it, but I think they did. I think they have it right. Please excuse my French. I think followers of Jesus are in the holy shit business. Uh, Did you know that uh, this four-letter word that my mother would wash my mouth out with soap if she ever knew I said it, particularly in this place, uh, (laughs) is actually found in the Bible. Uh, Philippians 3, 8, uh, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for, whom this, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them scubalon, garbage. Now, uh, scubalon, as best I can tell, I looked it up online, is only found once in the Greek New Testament. And here's the word as it was found in the Greek Bible online. It's any refuse, any excrement of animals, offscurrings, rubbish, dregs of worthless, detestable. It's S-H, you know the word. And I think holiness in the Christian tradition is mysteriously messy. It's God literally stepping into the mess. God stepped in our scubalon in this world. Think about the incarnation with me for a moment. That that God would step in Christ into our messy, messed up, ugly, broken world. It's enfleshment, this thing we call the incarnation. The incarnation of Jesus is, is that it's majesty in a manger. The incarnation of Jesus is that it's holiness in the hay. The incarnation of Jesus is its divinity in the dust. And and so I've been thinking about these things, pondering these ideas of the incarnation and and what that means for us as followers of Jesus. And I want to just share with you uh, this morning two observations that I think are connected to this whole idea of social holiness. The first observation I would make is that the incarnation of Jesus is our very message. I love John 1.14, one of my most favorite Bible verses. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John wants us to know that that there was a moment, as Paul said, in the fullness of time, when time was just right, God sent His Son to be born of a virgin. Uh, Eugene Peterson, when he translates this verse, says says that that God moved into our, our neighborhood. And isn't that the good news that we declare every Advent? Um, Whether you know it or not, we're on this 26-day sprint, you know, 
from All Saints Day to the first Sunday in Advent. And this is the message that we declare, that God really has come into our world. He stepped into this messy, broken world. It's a a message that a culture that's consumed with hate and vitriol that bastardizes Christmas by seeking to anesthetize our empty souls by buying stuff. And yet we have the audacity to declare that God sent the Son. This week I found in my research uh, this not much sung Charles Wesley hymns. There's a whole bunch of not much sung Charles Wesley hymns. Uh, So there's a lot of good material there that we don't use. I found this one. uh, It's an Advent hymn called Glory Be to God on High. I wanted to read all four verses, but I'm only going to read three there or two there on the screen. Uh, Glory be to God on high and peace on earth descend. God comes down. He bows the sky. And shows himself our friend. God the invisible appears. God the blessed, the great I am. I love this line. Sojourns in this veil of tears. And Jesus is his name. The last verse. We the sons of men rejoice. The prince of peace proclaim. With angels lift up our voice and shout Emmanuel's name. Knees and hearts to him we bow. Now check this out. Of our flesh and of our bone, Jesus is our brother now, and God is all our own. You see, God has become one of us. Um, our, 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 our message is that Jesus waded into the mess of this world to rescue us. That holiness has descended to us. And this Jesus gave his life, interestingly enough, on a scubalon heap, on a garbage heap outside of Jerusalem. And this is our audacious message that God stepped into our world's scubalons. And I don't know about you, I find it a whole lot easier to embrace and understand Jesus' divinity. Yet, as I heard a great sermon at the New Room conference recently, it is the humanity of Jesus that moves me. Remember that we didn't start adding those halos around Jesus until about a thousand years ago. You see, Jesus got tired. He grew weary. He suffered pain. When he cried, they were salty human tears. He felt abandoned. He got angry. He even got angry at God. Yet, Jesus knows what it means for you and me to be a human being. He he gets it. He gets our emotions. He gets our temptations. He gets our questions and our doubts. He gets all of it. This past weekend, one of our Asbury graduates uh, who's on our staff, Kevin Griffin, uh, he's in his 30s. And this weekend, he shared uh, at the Cape Coral campus, he he shared about an experience that he had with his oldest child. He he talked about, and every one of us in this room who's a parent who's raised a a children um, gets this. He talked about how um, his daughter lived for many, many years in what he called this kind of fairy tale land, daddy knows best kind of environment. And that recently she's kind of stepped into this other scary place, this preteen place where the fairy comes and beats the daughter on the head and things start to happen to her body and and, and, and she's not the same little girl. And he said that last week, it was the proof in the pudding was, last week his daughter came to him and said, Daddy, you just don't get it. He said, what happened to my little angel? 
And he said before, before he, 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 he could jump at her, he, he wanted to communicate, sweetheart, I know I've lived this life. I indeed get it. I understand what you're going through. I do care. And, and if you'll listen to me, I can share with you my experience. But before he could speak a word, the Holy Spirit told him to stop and shut up. And the Holy Spirit said, I want to teach you a lesson from the mouth of your 10-year-old preteen daughter. And it was this, Kevin, next time you think that I'm not listening, next time you think that I don't care, next time you think that I don't get it, remember this moment because I get it. Jesus' incarnation to this world is that God in Christ gets it. And this is why we can trust him. And this is our message to a brokenless, a broken fatherless and motherless generation that God gets it. Our message is that God has stepped into this messy world. Jesus stepped into Scubalon. But the second observation I would make is that the incarnation of Jesus is not just our message, it's our ministry. If you were to pin me down and ask me what my life verse is, it's this verse, 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Paul writes, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. Seems to me that, that if you were to try to pin down social holiness uh, in, a, in a verse, this might do. That this is real social holiness. You see, our holiness will reflect the holiness of Jesus as we wade into the muck and mire of people's lives. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus hung out with the people that nobody else wanted and that nobody else saw. He hung out with the women and the children and the Samaritans and the drunks, the disease, the social and the spiritual outcasts of his day. And if you look at this verse, it's almost as if Paul is equating the sharing of the good news with the sharing of our lives. Dare I say, it's impossible to separate the message from the messenger. We loved you so much that we gave you not only the good news, but our lives too. A couple of insights around this idea of the incarnation being our ministry. I think what it means is that we have to step into the scubalon of people's lives. We have to step into the, into the mess of people's lives. We have to wade into the mess of people's broken lives. Uh, recently, we had Alan Deb Hirsch at our church. And Deb Hirsch said this line, the heartbeat of the city is where the pain is. I began reflecting on that and thinking about Paul in Athens in Acts chapter 17, when Paul writes these words, or Luke writes these words of Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Paul, it says here, was greatly distressed. He was disturbed at what he saw. And when I looked it up, it said that his, his, his pneuma, his spirit, was perplexed and agitated. And, and we have to ask ourselves the question, why? Was it because he was a finger-waving, judgmental jerk? Or could it be that Paul was deeply moved spiritually at their idolatry? It had to be something more than simple moral indignation. His heart was broken at their lostness. The heartbeat of the city is where the pain is. We need to take a cue from Paul here. And we need to be heartbroken over the brokenness of people. You know these two verses from 1 Corinthians 9. To the weak I become weak, to win the weak. 
I become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. I become all things to all people that by all possible means I might save some. One of our staff put it this way. He said, the Pharisee says, you become like me to be saved. The incarnational follower of Jesus says, I'm going to become like you so that you might be saved. This is our ministry. As we wade into the mess of people's lives, and let me suggest for those of us gathered in worship this morning who are part of this great Wesleyan stream, it's a part of our heritage. I want to remind you how John Wesley came to field preaching. He was friends with George Whitfield, that great outdoor evangelist. Listen to what John Wesley wrote in his journal in March on the 29th, Thursday the 29th, 1739, just a year or so after Aldersgate. He said, I left London, and in the evening expounded to a small company at Basingstoke, Saturday 31. In the evening, I reached Bristol and met Mr. Whitfield there. I could scarcely reconcile myself at first to this strange way of preaching in the fields of which he had set me an example on Sunday. I love this line. I had been all my life, till very lately, so tenacious of every point related to decency and order that I should have thought the saving of souls almost of sin if it had not been done in a church. So on April 2nd, Wesley ventures out. At four in the afternoon, I submitted to be more vile and proclaimed in the highways the glad tidings of salvation, speaking from a little eminence in the ground adjoining to the city to about 3,000 people. Uh, this was John Wesley's uh, fresh expression of church, and it was very messy. And he and the early Methodists were stepping into the scubalon of the poor and the addicted and the marginalized of 1700s England. And he was joining Jesus in the heartbeat of the city where the pain is. Let me suggest, my precious sisters and brothers, that we have to step into the scubalon of people's lives this is our ministry. But let me round it out by going to the backside of this story. Because we also have to let others step into the scubalon of our own life. Now let me suggest to those of us in this room who are training to be religious professionals that this stuff is really hard for us. You see, the false portrait of being a spiritual leader pushes against being vulnerable about your stuff, your scubala. And sadly, sadly, much of American evangelical church culture, and dare I say, much of the Wesleyan holiness culture, fuels this sick, unhealthy detachment of clergy from acknowledging their weakness and brokenness. Can I just suggest this? That this alone sends countless millions of millennials running from the church like rats from a sinking ship. So let me share with you a couple of suggestions. First, learn to be appropriately vulnerable with those that you lead. Learn to be appropriately vulnerable with those who you lead. I've shared three years ago that my son, my youngest son, Nathan, has struggled with uh, an addiction to oxycodone, and it has meant a season of jail and rehab, all the same time, 
while in our public life, our ministry has been up and to the right. It has been hell to live in our home over the last decade and a half. And I've struggled with what do I share with my congregation? And here's what I've discovered. My congregation will go as far as I'm willing to go with them. We have to be appropriately vulnerable. And our congregation, they have journeyed with Cheryl and me without feeling responsible for Nathan and without taking away my responsibility to still be the spiritual leader of our congregation. I think this rope is pretty long of being appropriately vulnerable with those who you lead. But there's a second side to this deal that I want to share with you as I bring things to a close. And that's that we be ruthlessly vulnerable with a handful of friends. On Thursday, my two best friends in the world, Dale Locke, he's right over, wave at me, Dale. Came friends here. And Matthew Hartsfield will join us right up here to talk about this very issue. About what it means to be ruthlessly vulnerable with a handful of friends. I've taught our congregation back in Florida that there's a mantra that you ought to seek to live by. And the mantra is this, it's pretty simple, that the things that you practice during days of peace and serenity will be what carries you during days of conflict and chaos. So what happens for many of us is we get to one of these very dark places in our life and we reach into the tool pouch of our life and we haven't put anything away for that dark day. So I've been investing myself in our friendship with these seven pastors, six pastors and myself, for 26 years. Um, two weeks ago yesterday, my daughter-in-law hit my 17-month-old granddaughter with her car. This is a picture of her, I think. It's really dark, you can't see it, I'm sorry. We're getting a new projector, I was told, so that would be a good thing. That's a picture of Grandpa holding his granddaughter. Uh, two days after the accident. She was airlifted because they thought she might die and they were going to have to do brain surgery to Tampa General Hospital. I was speaking to the elders and the deacons and a whole bunch of folks in North Alabama at Camp Sumatunga. There's no cell phone reception there. And I got stuck in this cycle, this kind of fight or flight, or fight or flight cycle there on that mountaintop as I got on an airplane and flew to Tampa. But when I got off the plane in Tampa, remember my mantra, the things you practice during days of peace and serenity will carry you during days of conflict and chaos. When I got off the plane, there was Matthew and Maisie. I fell into their arms and sobbed uncontrollably. We made the ride to the hospital and I got there and there's my bishop and his wife and the administrative assistant there's my best friend, Dale. Doug joined him later. And these were relationships that have been cultivated. These, these are some of the people with whom I've been ruthlessly vulnerable about my life. You see, friends, um, social holiness is all about living in rich community. It's about having what Eric's talked about so beautifully for us this morning. So my challenge to you is simple. Live into it. Because God in Christ has stepped into your scuba line 
you are invited to step into the scubalon of others and invite others to step into yours. This is true social holiness. Let's stand for prayer. So, Lord, uh, thank you, first and foremost, that you have stepped into the mess of this world and you've stepped into the mess of our lives in this room, that there isn't a one of us in this room whose life isn't a mess. All of us, Lord, are dysfunctional. All of us have hurts and habits and hang-ups. All of us have addictions. All of us have secret sins in this place. And we thank you that in Christ you have stepped into our lives and that the gospel is that you are not afraid of our junk, of our stuff, of our brokenness, but that through Christ you invite us to step into true holiness. You, you want to return us as our spiritual father, John Wesley said, to that primitive nature. You want to restore us in body and soul, in mind and relationships. And so, Lord, uh, I pray that your Holy Spirit will not let us go until we begin to practice during these days of peace and serenity those things that will carry us during days of conflict and chaos. Now, thank you for these moments together of learning and worship, we pray. All of this to the honor and glory and fame of Jesus' name. All of God's people agreeing with this prayer said.